0: Welcome to Socrates in the City. My name is Eric Metaxas, and I'm thrilled to announce the first Socrates event of the year. Welcome to that extraordinary event. Uh, it, it is it is exciting. Now, I just I want to ask you: uh, Did everybody, you know, did did you have a good summer? And what did, what did you what did you do this summer? I'm just. It's about building community. If you don't mind, we've done this a number of times, as you know, I just um, (laughs) want to go around the room, and if everybody would just share, just briefly, just say who you are, where you're from, and just a a few words on what you did uh, this summer, if you don't mind. Okay, never mind. I I was just pretending I couldn't care less what you did with your summer, thank you. But it really is wonderful uh, to be back uh, after the summer. We traditionally take the summers off. Uh, any newcomers? Are there people here who have never before been to a Socrates in the city event? Anybody? I'm just always curious. Okay, well, it is, it's our tradition. If you would just really just sing a few bars of anything. Uh, we're not going to put you on the spot. It doesn't, we don't even care what it is. But just something to, to show us that you care. So who, who had their hand up first? No. Well, for those of you who are in fact new, let me tell you a little bit about Socrates and the City in case you didn't know. Uh, I often say publicly that we're a UFO cult. Uh, I, won't, I won't say that this evening, but, um, but we are. And, um, but publicly what I say is that uh, we take our idea from Socrates' famous maxim, the unexamined life is not worth living. Um, he said that a long, long time ago. Uh, not, not in English, as I understand it, but that idea, it uh, struck me, was a valuable one, especially for New Yorkers who tend not to think very deeply about anything, much less the big questions, uh, because we're so busy going after the brass ring. And so about 12 years ago, a number of us thought that perhaps uh, we might have a forum called Socrates in the City where we would in fact examine the big questions. And usually the big questions are the kinds of questions which half the time make people uncomfortable uh, because they're the questions about what we like to call life, God, and other small topics, the big questions. And so we don't shrink from asking uh, the big questions. If you look at our our website, you'll see that we have uh, run the gamut uh, over the years. We're not ideologues. Well, I should say I'm not an ideologue. Most of the people in the organization are ideologues, (laughs) and I can point them out. But but really it's just to ask the big questions and to use the Q&A for people to ask questions of the speaker who has pose the larger uh, question. Um, in any case, that's how Socrates in the City started, although I have to say uh, that Oz Guinness, who will be our speaker tonight, was, um, is a friend and was seminal in the idea of Socrates uh, in the City. Uh, without Oz, I can tell you, we certainly would not have a Socrates in the city. In fact, Oz was the first 11 or 12 speakers, I think. But it is true. I, I remember Oz saying, well, we could do something where we could have a speaker and so on and so forth. And that's when it struck me that for New York, this would be, in a, in a sense, unique. We don't have uh, speakers like Oz Guinness very much in New York, you have to go to other places, but I thought if ever there were a place that needed to hear from not just Os Guinness but a number of wonderful friends uh, uh, and strangers who have become friends, uh, to hear from them, uh, to get their ideas, great thinkers uh, and and writers and most important, great speakers, I thought we should do it. So we've been doing it for about 12 years now, it's very hard for me to believe that that's the case. It was the summer of 2000, or rather the fall of 2000, uh, September of 2000 that we started. Um, In any case, Oz is here tonight. We're very excited about that. Uh, He is speaking tonight on his book. I can never remember the subtitle. Oz, you're going to have to help me. It is Sustainable Freedom in the American Future. That's not so hard, but it's a free people's suicide. Sustainable Freedom in the American Future. When I read this book, which I did in manuscript form a number of months ago, uh, it was one of those experiences that it's kind of disturbing, actually, because if you read something and you feel that it's extremely important, you you have a kind of an urgency uh, to share it. And uh, unfortunately, I was on a plane at the time. Nobody wanted to hear what I had to say. So I thought I would impose it on you uh, tonight. But I have been tweeting and Facebooking about this. The idea of this book is so ridiculously seminal. The reason I say ridiculous because... Most seminal ideas are boring because you've heard them a million times because they're seminal ideas. They're practically cliches. But the seminal idea of Oz's book, uh, which was obvious, I think, to a number of generations after the founders, the very idea of what makes American liberty unique, what makes it sustainable, this incredibly important historical idea um, has somehow been lost. I think that when you have something, uh, even when it's something extremely wonderful and fragile and valuable, eventually you take it for granted. And it strikes me that we have finally taken this amazing idea for granted and we hardly know what it is. And if Americans don't know the very thing uh, that makes us who we are because we are an experiment, because we are uh, not united by uh, our blood, by our tribe. We're not. Ide- it's not even just our borders. Uh, it, it, it's an idea. And if we don't know what that idea is, frankly, America ultimately ceases to be. We become what Oz Guinness has sometimes called a cut flower society. Everything might look great, but the flowers cut only a matter of time. So when I read the book, I really was obviously um, Upset, excited, Uh, I thought we've got to share this. So this is the least that we can do is to have an event where Oz uh, gets to talk about this. Um, Well, in any case, let me tell you a little bit about Oz. Uh, Oz is, as I hope you know, an author and a speaker. He lives in D.C. He is the great-great-grandson of Arthur Guinness, the Dublin brewer, that is true. Um, He... (laughs) What's the Aramaic for get out? (laughs) Um, Oz was born in China during World War II where his parents were medical missionaries. Uh, He was a witness to the climax of the Chinese Revolution in 1949 and was expelled, he and his family, with other foreigners in 1951 and returned to Europe where he was educated in England. Um, (laughs) La-di-da. He completed his undergraduate degree at the University of of London and his um, DPhil in the Social Sciences from Oriel, College, Oxford. He's written and edited many, many books. I know that we have them uh, at our book table, at least a number of them, and Oz has spoken about a number of them before. Uh, The Call is one of my favorites. If you don't know which one to buy after you buy the one uh, from tonight, I would recommend that. It's uh, spectacular, but they're all spectacular. Oz was a freelance reporter with the BBC. He came to the United States in 1984 and has been a guest scholar at the Woodrow Wilson Center for International Studies and a guest scholar and visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution. Um, He started the Trinity Forum. Some of you know about the Trinity Forum and was a senior fellow uh, there for a long time. He uh, speaks and lectures widely uh, at places like Oxford and Cambridge and Harvard and Stanford. He's spoken at the White House and Capitol Hill uh, and other public policy arenas. Uh, particularly around Washington, Uh, he says that as a European visitor to this country and a great admirer but detached observer of American culture today, uh, he stands in the long tradition of outside voices who've contributed so much to America's ongoing discussion about the state of the Union. Uh, So I'm I'm just very excited uh, about that tonight. Um, uh, I I think that uh, half of the Socrates and the city speakers over the years, if not more than half, have had British accents, have you you noticed that? Have you kept track of that? So they can say the most banal things, and yet somehow it sounds like it has gravitas. Well, back to America and Britain. We were just saying that uh, America and Britain, that the funny thing, that, that we're so similar and so different, but the one thing that people often say about America is that we're optimistic, and just the other day I heard somebody say, it's the famous thing, that in America there's great opportunity and hope, and you can be anything if you set your mind to it, you can be absolutely anything you like, right? You've heard that? And I realized that I want to be a British intellectual. <laughs> and it's, it's simply, it doesn't seem possible. But uh, in the meantime, at least, that we can hear from my friend, the British intellectual, Oz Guinness. We will in a moment, just a word on format. We have traditionally about 30 or 40 minutes of a talk. Uh, then we've got about 30 or so minutes of Q&A. And then you will, you must Purchase this book and get Oz to sign it. It is a great privilege to welcome my friend Oz Guinness to Socrates in the City. Thank you.
1: Incorrigible as ever. (laughs) I literally had three emails after it was announced, this particular Socrates that all said, how on earth do you give a serious talk after you've had an Eric Metaxas introduction? (laughs) Some people just fool around, and they're very difficult to follow, because they don't say anything serious. But Eric goes from the light to the deep, and I know the deep passion of his heart underlying everything, so he's actually very easy to follow. It's a tremendous privilege to be back here again. We've just been through the two conventions and one of the common comments on both of them that they were rather short in analysis and short in substantive proposals. I'm not here to argue that tonight, but one of the arguments that was given or one of the comments given was on one of the conventions that they were more Pat Boone than they were Winston Churchill. I was born under the premiership of Churchill, grew up listening to his speeches, and had the privilege of meeting him when I was a teenager. And certainly there was always an incredible historical sense to every speech, as well as an extraordinary pithy analysis of the situation to which he was speaking. And I confess I miss that today. And what I want to speak about is really an issue below many of the issues now being discussed. But one, I think, that comes close to the very heart of this republic. St. Augustine used to say that if you understand a nation, you don't look at the size of its population, or the strength of its army, or the prestige of its universities you look at what he called its loved things held in common. Or what a nation loves supremely. And if what a nation loves supremely is noble, that nation may be noble. And if what a nation loves supremely is in robust condition, that nation may be in health condition. There's no question that anyone looking at the American republic the loved thing held in common, the supreme love of this country from the beginning down to today, both to American citizens and to American people around the world, is freedom. Freedom. So I'd argue that you can judge the health of America at any point by the health of its freedom. In 1843, there was a young Massachusetts researcher, who wanted to interview all the remaining veterans of the Revolutionary Wars. And among those he met was an old gentleman 70 years older than him, Captain Levi Preston, who was 91. And he'd fought at both Lexington and Concord. And the young student's first question was, Why did you go out to fight? And the old boy was puzzled at such an obvious question and didn't answer it slowly stiffened himself up to his full height. Well, surely you were oppressed. We weren't oppressed, he growled. Well, what about the Stamp Act? Never paid a penny for it, he said. How about the tea tax? Never drank a drop of it, he said. The boys threw it in the harbor before we got there. <laughs> well, surely you'd read the great books of Burke and Sydney and Harrington and Locke. Never heard of them, he said. The only books we had were the Bible Isaac wants hymnal and an almanac. The interview went on like this and the student was getting rather nonplussed and so he said again, well, why did you go out to fight? And the old boy gave this immortal answer. We had always been free and we intended to be free always. Now you can easily say that as a truism. But actually if you think that is a daring idea, always free free always and it wasn't just that one soldier you can see generals like nathaniel green or many of the founding fathers themselves believed that what they were about and this is actually in the light of history a daring and brilliant idea what they were about was creating a free society that could stay free forever when no free societies ever had And that's what I want to talk about tonight. Sustainable freedom and its place today in the American future. Think, though, very simply, of the tasks the framers knew that they were undertaking in establishing a free society. If you put the three tasks out, they sound so obvious, they're hardly worth saying, and yet the crucial one, which is our task, we forget The first task, obviously, winning freedom, 1776, the revolution. But, of course, the French did that, 1789. The Russians did that, 1917. The Chinese did that, 1949. That's not unique. The second task is harder, winning freedom and then ordering freedom, giving it a political, structural framework so that it might last. And that's 1787. The Constitution. Now, of course, the French and the Russians and the Chinese did not do that. And as we know, their revolution spiraled down to demonic disorder and created tyrannies worse than the ones they replaced. And the genius of the American Revolution, freedom was ordered. It was an ordered liberty. But the third task is the hard one. Sustaining freedom. Or in the founders' words, perpetuating the institutions of freedom. Many people know Ben Franklin's famous remark to Mrs. Powell who asked him what they'd achieved in the Philadelphia Convention. A republic, madam, can you complete the sentence? If you can keep it. it. Many people know that. But they don't explore further how the founders, right to the end of their lives, for example, Madison were constantly asking how we were doing in perpetuating freedom. And you see this later. For instance, the young Abraham Lincoln, only 28, only three months in Springfield, Illinois, but asked to address the young men's lyceum. He chooses, as his topic of the day, how many 28-year-olds would choose this today? The perpetuation of our institutions. And he gives what he calls... An account running, almost like an accountant, of the pros and cons of how Americans were doing 50 years after the revolution. A remarkable speech for a 28 year old. But you can see how that sense of sustaining freedom continued, but has almost died out today. In the last 50 years, I don't think any serious address by any American president on that topic. Books occasionally, like John Gardner's renewal, calling for a cabinet secretary for the Department of Renewal, but not picked up and hardly a topic. In other words, when nations become powerful and free, freedom is taken for granted and the whole notion of sustaining freedom is forgotten. But for the framers, and here's the second point, they pitted those tasks against the challenges and menaces that any free society always faced. They were revolutionary, no question. But they were also rooted. They knew their history. In fact, we can say they used history to defy history. And they were very aware why no free societies ever lasted. But they were determined that they could build in a system that could beat the odds and actually do it. Now what were the menaces that they understood? They read, as you can see in their writings and their speeches, many of the classical authors, but supremely in this connection, Cicero, the Roman orator, and Polybius, the Greek historian. And the classics had a very clear understanding of what brought down free societies. The first and obvious thing, interestingly, was something the framers did not bother about And that was an external menace. Suddenly a nation can find itself confronted with an enemy that has a larger military force or whatever, and all they can do is be prepared and be vigilant. But the framers didn't take that one so seriously. And you can see in Washington's farewell address how he discounts that. Or you can see in the same speech by Abraham Lincoln how he discounts that. In other words, Lincoln talks about almost the absurd idea of what he calls a transatlantic bonaparte putting his feet down in the cornfields of Ohio then the far west. And one can understand why they didn't take that seriously. They'd come, most of them except for John Jay, from a small protected island and they found themselves on a large protected continent. With the world's two largest oceans as buffers on either side, and the nearest serious enemies in Europe, 3,000 miles away. Now, of course, we have to take that more seriously. In an age of intercontinental ballistic missiles and the Internet and box cutters, we know that the threat of that is much more serious. But we do not take seriously the second and third menaces that they did take seriously, The second menace is what Polybius, the Greek historian, calls a corruption of customs. And his thinking is very interesting. Polybius says, what's decisive for any nation is its constitution, its fundamental laws. And Americans read that single sentence and switch off and yawn. You've got the world's longest surviving constitution and maybe the greatest. That's all it takes. No, no, Polybius says. The best constitution in the world, he said, if you have a corruption of customs, that is the bedding in which the constitution rests. And if you have a corruption of the traditions and the moral standards of the people, the best constitution in the world will eventually be subverted. It will still have the same name, but it will be a different reality. And Polybius warns that that is always the vulnerable temptation at times of power and prosperity. The third menace, and the framers knew this one well, in one word is time. Cicero writes a lot about this. Things that are fresh become faded. What is revolutionary in one generation becomes routine in another. And so the republic in Rome, Cicero warned, was on its last legs and about to be overtaken by what became the empire under the Caesars. You see the same thing in Montesquieu and Tocqueville and many others, an extraordinary awareness of time. And the framers understood that. And so did the young Lincoln. Again, how many 28-year-olds today could speak or write with that vivid sense that he later called, this too shall pass. But as a 28-year-old, he says, the silent artilleries of time are ruining the ramparts of the republic. Now, you probably know that the Constitution in 1787 was passed the same year that the last volume of Edward Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire was published. And in the last chapter, if you've ever read it, Gibbon just raises the question, why did Rome fall? 800 years of dominance... And it was shattering to the world of the time that Rome fell. And he raises the question, why? And his first answer the injuries of time. Now, how many people take those menaces seriously today? Very, very few. But do you seriously think, if you visit, say, the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, magnificent, and Lincoln sitting in his Curl chair of the Roman senators. But do you really think in the long march of history that will survive longer than the Parthenon or the pyramids or the Sphinx or the hanging gardens of Babylon or whatever? The presence of sin, the passing of time. Nothing ever lasts forever. Now I want to add in as a third point the paradox of freedom, which is even clearer to us with modern scholarship and understanding than it might have been to the framers. The paradox of freedom is something that startles many people. The greatest enemy of freedom is freedom. Now, if you unpack that paradox, there are a number of levels to it. For a start, there's a historical level. It's a simple fact that no free societies have ever lasted forever. In fact, if you take the history of freedom and you take the whole story of human civilization, roughly a 100 centuries, and put it into one hour, free societies would only enter in in the last two or three minutes. But below the historical level is a political level. As many of the great French theorists, such as Montesquieu, who was the mentor of Alexis de Tocqueville, as they all pointed out, Liberty requires not just structures of freedom, such as law, constitution. Freedom requires the spirit of liberty. And while you can lay down the structures of liberty, and they might be there for centuries, the spirit of liberty has to be alive from generation to generation and is not laid down forever, and if a generation arises that doesn't understand liberty as a matter of what Tocqueville calls the habit of the heart, then freedom is in danger of going. But that isn't the deepest level of the paradox. The deepest level is moral. You might say spiritual. Freedom requires ordering. And the only ordering appropriate to freedom is self-restraint. Not restraint imposed from the outside, but self-restraint. But self-restraint is precisely what's undermined when freedom flourishes. And the major reason that freedom undermines itself is it quickly moves down towards permissiveness and then eventually license. And, of course, freedom is not the permission to do what you like. It's the power to do what you ought and that paradox of freedom is demonstrated by all the free societies in history. Now, how did the framers seek to counter that? They didn't give any name to their system. Alexis de Tocqueville calls it the habits of the heart, a very famous phrase. In other words, he says... American freedom does not just depend on the Constitution and laws. It depends on the habits of the heart, what Montesquieu would call the structures of freedom and the spirit of freedom in the hearts of citizens. But my own name for it is the golden triangle of freedom. Because if you read all the framers, all the founders, with no exception, from evangelicals like John Jay and Patrick Henry through fully orthodox Christians like George Mason, right across to deists like Thomas Jefferson and freethinkers like Ben Franklin, all of them agreed on what I'm calling the golden triangle of freedom. Obviously a triangle with three legs. And rather like the modern recycling triangle, each of the three legs reinforces the other and it goes round and round and round. The first leg of the triangle for the framers Freedom requires virtue. Now, of course, the word virtue is under a cloud today with notions like virtuecrats and people imposing their values on others. But, of course, for the framers, virtue, which in its Latin root means courage, virtue includes everything like honesty, loyalty, patriotism, and, of course, all these things summed up in character. So, for example, John Adams, only a virtuous people are capable of freedom because freedom, again, is not the permission to do what you like but the power to do what you ought, people who know the duties and responsibilities of citizenship. Adams uses all the words that we today tie in with freedom and rights, like inalienable, indefeasible, and words like that, and he uses them to describe the people's right to know the character of their leaders. Because character is between leaders and followers. Followers can trust leaders if they know their character because even when the followers don't know quite what they're doing or why they're doing what they're doing, they can always trust their character. Now, you can see how that's gone today. When the build-up towards the Clinton impeachment happened, There was a famous letter to the New York Times by various American scholars, character does not matter. All that matters in a president today is competence. And that's just one tiny example how you can see the widespread dismissal of that first leg of the triangle, that freedom requires virtue. I mean, you just take the history of the presidency itself that would show you again that character is absolutely crucial. The one president who actually added to the notion of IQ with CQ, or character quotient, was President Nixon. But many people have pointed out his own administration was perhaps the best illustration of an administration that brought itself down because of flaws in the character of the President the Secretary of State, the Chief of Staff in the White House, and so on and so on and so on. Freedom requires virtue. The second leg of the triangle, virtue requires faith of some sort. What's the inspiration of virtue? What is the content that tells us what virtue actually is? And of course, what's the sanction described when people are not virtuous, such as the Christian notion of, say, hell? the framers were quite clear that while the Christian faith was not established in any formal or official way, they respected it because it was a faith that gave what modern social scientists call a thick notion of virtue rather than a thin one. Now, don't misunderstand me. The framers are absolutely clear that, of course, atheists had the right of freedom of conscience. Everybody did, without exception but they are embarrassingly politically incorrect by today's standards by being exceedingly wary of a society of atheists because there would be insufficient virtue without the inspiration and the content and the sanctions which faiths very naturally provided. And you can see how that one, too, is roundly dismissed today. The third leg of the triangle, faith of any sort, requires freedom. And that, of course, is actually the unique part of the American experiment. Many people think separation of powers, things like that. England had that. Montesquieu praised the English separation of powers a century earlier. And, of course, long before that, the Swiss had their own version of separation of powers. That is not unique. But the First Amendment is. And the disestablishment of religion in an official way. And the making of each faith voluntary That was radical and broke with 1,500 years of European tradition and lies at the very heart of the secret of of the United States. Now, of course, those three reinforce each other. Freedom requires virtue, which requires faith of some sort, which requires freedom, which requires virtue, and so on and so on and so on. And the framers had this very clear view. As I said, they didn't give it that name. If you read all their speeches and writings, they're teaching on this in a hundred ways. One historian has described that as the 800-pound gorilla in the room that is so obvious and yet hardly mentioned today. What has changed? Well, you can see back in the 19th century, faith slowly began to be privatized. It became more and more, under the impact of the Industrial Revolution, privately engaging, publicly irrelevant. And that sort of a faith was inadequate to do the job that the framers understood that any faith needed to do. And I would start there because I would say bluntly, sometimes Christians and conservatives blame various people today, liberals, atheists, secularists, or whatever. Actually, the rot started within the realm of faith long before there were any serious enemies out in the culture. Now, to that privatization which began in the 19th century, you could add various things in the last century. For example, the notion of proceduralism in public life, often associated with John Rawls at Harvard. The idea that the public square is a neutral arena of competing self-interests, and there's no place in the public square for faith or character or virtue. So faith, character, and virtue are inviolably private matters. And the public square is inviolably secular. And you can see how that notion dominates most of the intellectual circles in this country and the way they respond to issues of religion and public life. Most recently has been the third thing undermining the framers' idea, and by far the most radical, although fortunately the most limited, which is postmodernism. The idea there's no such thing as truth. What we call truth is really the will to power. So underlying all the claims to truth are simply an agenda of power. So even the Declaration of Independence dismissed because it was written by slave-owning founding fathers and so on. Now, that one is by far the most radical, but as I said, by far the most limited. What are some of the contemporary menaces to freedom? The first one, I think, I've already hinted at, is what you might call the alienation of leaders. It's often pointed out in history that no great nation can survive if a sufficient number of its thought leaders are either ignorant or at odds with the big ideas that made that nation what it is. And clearly, there are many parts in this country where we have reached that stage. Not all, thank God, but in many, many parts. Either the ignorance or the open dismissal of the framers. Now, they're dismissed for understandable reasons sometimes. For instance, the egregious evil of their attitudes towards slavery or of women. But sadly, where they're wrong... That's used as a way of throwing out the entire baby, bathwater and all, and where they're so incredibly brilliant and daring and right, they're completely ignored. But you can see in many circles in this country a significant alienation of leaders. The second contemporary challenge goes deeper, and that is a breakdown in the transmission of American values. America's in the business of transmitting its values always, in every generation, in two ways. From the older generation to the younger generation, which we call education. And from the old-timers in this country, because there aren't very many true natives, to the newcomers in the area of immigration. Now, if you think, in both those areas in the last 50 years since the 1960s, there's been a breakdown in the transmission of values. Almost no civic education in the public schools. Or when it comes to immigration, all sorts of issues are discussed. Border control, English as a second language, all sorts of things. Hardly ever. I've never heard it discussed in Washington how civic education is taught to people coming in. So Samuel Hunting used to say, relatively easy to become an American, but increasingly difficult to know what it is to be American, a breakdown in the transmission of values. But the third contemporary menace, to use Polybius' terms, is a corruption of customs. Lincoln called the Civil War a Freedom War, in the sense that both the North and the South used words like freedom, but they each put very different content into it. And in the same way today, you can say that many of the issues in the culture wars are actually a freedom war, the second freedom war. At point after point after point, you have Jewish and Christian notions, which have been the underlying convictions of the West for nearly 2,000 years, fighting it out over various issues with secular and liberal and humanist notions, often reinforced by modern technology. And it's quite clear that it's the second, largely that's winning, but involved in that is a profound corruption of freedom. Because if you understand the framers' freedom and put it in modern terms, it was not just negative. Negative freedom is freedom from. The framers' freedom was freedom from, of course, from colonial oppression or whatever. But it was also freedom for, freedom to be, with an understanding of what it meant to be free citizens. But you can see increasingly in America today, while it's notions like libertarianism that catch the ear, most American notions of freedom now, not only liberal but also conservative, are purely negative getting the government off our backs, out of our bodies, or whatever. Permission to do what you like, as long as we're consenting adults and so on, rather than any notion of negative freedom followed by positive freedom. And the simple fact is that most contemporary views of American freedom are unsustainable and are already beginning to run out in the sands of permissiveness and license. What would it take to turn it around? Well, I don't want to go into that in too great depth tonight, but just mention, I think first we need leadership. Jenny and I were in the Congress recently, and one of the congressmen had read an advanced copy of my book. He said to me, I like your book, but I have one disagreement. You're too optimistic. I don't think America has five years, he said, before she will be in irreversible decline. And as we talked, I understood most of the points he was making. His major point was the lack of national leadership that transcends the bitterness of the partisan gridlock and really speaks out with a deeply American vision of what should be for all Americans today. And again and again, you get that refrain. In The last 10 years, both in business circles or university circles, sometimes in church circles, I've asked various groups, who for you is the leader That transcends so much of the extremism and articulates a truly American vision for all Americans. So far nobody has said anybody. There is a huge vacuum of leadership. Secondly, very clearly, we need a restoration of civic education. A teaching of Americans from generation to generation what America and the project is about and what citizenship really involves. It was always understood in the past that in a free society, everybody's born free, but not everyone's worthy of freedom. They have to be educated for liberty. It was once called liberal education. Now, the L words under a cloud in many circles call it civic education. It should be relatively easy to restore, but without it, the American unum is getting fainter and fainter and will no longer have the power to balance the American pluribus. The third thing profoundly needed is a reopening of civil public life to people of all faiths, and you can see how after 50 years of culture warring, the public square in many ways is freezing over and locked in various litigious battles from one side or another as a profound European admirer of this country, that makes me incredibly sad. When your framers called America the Novus Order Seclorum, the new order of the ages, quoting Livy. That was true, although the rest of the world wasn't interested. They went on their ways unimpressed. Because America, 230-odd years ago, was wrestling with the issues from the very beginning that now we see as the modern issues shaping the whole world. But now when the whole world realizes it's wrestling with those issues and the traditional ways in Europe and many other places are breaking down, they look across at America realizing the American significance. And what do they see? Endless culture warring and an almost paralyzed gridlock and America looks increasingly ungovernable. In other words, at the moment when America could and should truly be a city on a hill. She is anything but, because she is not living up to the greatness of her past in the whole understanding. I'm just looking at religion and public life. Where are we now? Before the book came out, I was asked to speak down in Columbia, South Carolina, and Columbia had the privilege of taking from you in New York and the New York Historical Society the famous five-part paintings by Thomas Cole, The Course of Empire. And I'm sure many of you have been uptown and seen those paintings. And Cole, in the 1830s, the same time that Lincoln wrote us, gave his extraordinary speech, Cole has these five huge murals that move from a pastoral landscape right up to the consummation of civilization with this grand Roman-style civilization. And then the fourth painting, destruction, with the Goths and the Visigoths, as it were, rampaging through. And then the final painting, desolation. And many people look at that today, and all they see is, well, 1830s they were worried about their pastoral world going and the industrial revolution, but surely coal had something far more serious in mind than that. That as we look over the whole course of human history, you can see the rise and fall of great empires and superpowers. And when I spoke down in South Carolina, the chairman of the evening, and everyone had been invited to look at the paintings with a cocktail reception before, the chairman of the evening got up and he said, we're all sobered by looking at these paintings. The question of the evening is, where are we? He said, my estimate is we're between number three and number four. But I'd like to go on from that to say, does that mean we're all pessimistic? Far from it. I'm moved by the fact that your framers had a very clear understanding of the possibility of restoration. Restoration. They were very aware of the parallels between the Jews and the Puritans before them and what they were doing in founding America in three ways, but the third one helps us out. First, what to the Jews was exodus, to the Puritans in New England was conversion, to the framers was in a national secular sense revolution. Each of them was a liberating moment that formed a new people. The second parallel, what to the Jews was covenant, to the Puritans was also covenant, and to the framers was nationalized and secularized constitution. The binding agreement that brings a people together. But it's the third parallel that intrigues me. What to the Jews was return? That word is so simple that many readers of the Old Testament often don't pick up its significance. As the prophets say, when people turn from God to false gods, they have to turn back from false gods to God, and God turns to them. And overall it's called by the Jews return. But what the Jews called return, the Puritans called return. Revival. And what's interesting is the American framers had their national and secular equivalent. George Mason, who was much more conservative, used to speak of the need for a frequent recurrence to fundamental first principles. Every generation needs to keep going back and buying into it all over again. Thomas Jefferson, Mr. J, was much more liberal as we know, but he spoke of the need for a revolution every 20 years. As Tocqueville says, every generation is a new people. So if a generation arises that doesn't buy into it all over again, you'll have a different people who have forgotten where they come from. And the framers believed that you need to keep going back to first principles. We can be realistic about the framers. I mentioned slavery and their attitude to women. But that said, I believe there's hardly any problems today that couldn't be helped enormously by a return to many of the first principles that made the American experiment what it is. But that, of course, is a challenge for your generation. I've often quoted one of the late remarks of Tocqueville. Americans love Tocqueville, understandably, Democracy in America. But you know he wrote that book not for Americans, but for Frenchmen in French. And he was a great admirer of this country and the American Revolution. And he was a disappointed lover of the French Revolution. But all his life he was comparing, contrasting the two in various ways. And a little remark towards the end of his life, he said, with a revolution as with a novel, the hard part to invent is the ending. I often put it, your founders wrote a brilliant first chapter, with the dark spots, a brilliant first chapter. And as we all know well, there have been many glorious chapters since then, just think of the greatest generation, but there's no question that if you look at the founding principles of this country and where those principles are today, and especially the notion of freedom and sustainable freedom. This generation will write one of the most significant chapters of all, and the choice is yours, although the consequences will be your children and their children. Sustainable freedom and the American future, not an issue you'll hear in the election, but I suggest to you it's far deeper than most of the issues you'll hear in the election. Thank you.